the archetype for what a king should be outside of the Lord Jesus Christ is King David of the Old Testament. King David was a strong warrior. Uh, He accomplished many war campaigns. He was thought to be the greatest king and the greatest warrior that Israel had ever known. He was a brave man. He was an honorable man. And yet he was a very sinful man. As a matter of fact, if you know anything about King David, he might be the biggest sinner out of anyone in this entire room. Not only did he see a woman bathing on the top of her house from his palace, uh, but depending on how you read the text, he either seduced her or raped her, and then sent her husband to war after he found out that she was pregnant for the sole purpose of having him killed. Why? So that no one would find out about his sin. And yet, of course, like all sins... It was found out. And he was confronted by the prophet Samuel in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And he said, listen, you've sinned greatly against God and what you have done to both Bathsheba, who was this woman, and her husband. To which David then replied, I have sinned against Yahweh. And Nathan said to David, almost instantaneously, Yahweh also has taken away your sin and you shall not die. Now, if you are thoughtful at all, your immediate response to this is, how in the world can that be so? How can David do such an egregious thing both to God and to the people around him and Nathan almost act as if it didn't even happen? Well, Job understood this reality. That God was holy and asked in Job 9.2, How can a man be in the right before God? In other words, how can a man be justified be righteous enough to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, which, by the way, is what God promised to David in the Psalms. And that is the question that you should ask yourself today. And that is the question of the Gospel itself. How are we sinners able to even stand before God and not melt like wax before a furnace? On Judgment Day. How can we assume that God's promises are in fact for us when we are, according to the text uh, that we are, precedes the text that we're going to look at today, says that we are all sinners. That we all fall short of the glory of God. And when I say that, what I'm not saying, and what the Bible is not saying, is that you make some mistakes sometimes. But that your inner disposition, your very nature is consumed by and directed by sin itself. And the way that we answer this question, how we stand right before God, makes all the difference in the world. Because to be right about this is to be right about everything that matters. To be wrong about this means to be hell-bound and hell-bent for destruction. And today we are going to be looking at, continuing on our series, Christ our treasure, Christ our righteousness. 
Because the truth is found in the reality that Jesus Christ both paid for our past sins and our future sins and is working in and through our current mess of sins. And it's because of Jesus and because of His righteousness that we can even begin to think that we have any sort of favor before God. And I do mean you. I don't mean the person sitting next to you. And I don't mean somebody else out there in the ether. I mean you. As a matter of fact, if you've been paying attention to social media or the TV at all, there's been a, uh, which I haven't seen by the way, I'm not recommending anybody watch this, but there is a uh, documentary that's just been released on Jeffrey Dahmer. He is... uh, Uh, was a serial killer of the worst kind. I don't need to get into the details. But what's interesting about Jeffrey Dahmer is that when he was in prison, before he was about to be executed for his crimes against humanity, apparently, I don't know if any of this is true, but apparently he converted to Christianity. He was able to regurgitate the actual gospel message. Apparently he was leading people through Bible studies while in prison. And he had a pastor who would visit him quite often and who went on to record and say, God did something miraculous to this man's heart. Do you have the type of gospel that could believe that Jeffrey Dahmer could be in heaven? If you don't believe that, then I don't know that you believe the gospel. And that's what we're here to do today, to talk about Jesus Christ and His glorious gospel, namely that Jesus Christ is our righteousness. So we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 25. And if you would, please stand with me for the honoring and reading of God's holy, sufficient, infallible, and inerrant word. And this is his word. But now, Paul says, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith for a demonstration of his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. Will you have a seat and pray with me? Father God, we come before you as weak and beggarly vessels to either be used for your wrath or for your glory. But in your grace, you have extended to many of us in this room your hand of salvation. And so we want to come before you, Lord Jesus, and and ask that you would convict those who need to be convicted and that you would... Console those who need to be consoled and that you comfort those who are afflicted and that you afflict those who are far too comfortable. 
Lord, we ask that you would meet us in your word this day, that you would clarify the person and work of your son, Jesus, so that we may see him more clearly, love him more deeply, and work for him more heartily. We ask this not because we deserve it, but because your son, Christ, has purchased it for us. And we ask that you would be favorable toward us in this because of him. We ask this in his name. Amen. The beginning here in verse 21 lets us know something about this gospel. This gospel of Jesus Christ who has become our righteousness. And I have about 13 points that this chapter is going to teach us about that. The reality is we probably won't get through all of them, but we will get through enough of them to hopefully cause your heart to be stirred by this Jesus whom is our treasure. The first thing it says about this gospel is that it is now apart from the law. You see here we have two words at the beginning of this passage, but now. Right here we have a division in the book of Romans. Up to this point, Paul has been making a case that all of humanity has been thrust into sin by their rebellion. That there are, in fact, no atheists in the world. That we all know that there is a God by virtue of the fact that He has made us in His image and He has given us creation to act as people or act as things to condemn us. And so, we enter into chapter 3 where humanity has been presented as one that is condemned. As one who cannot stand right before God because of their rebellion and their suppression of Him in, uh, in unrighteousness. He has dropped the hammer. And here He has picked it up and He is putting on a platter for us the beautiful truths of the Gospel message. The beautiful truths of what it is that the Gospel is. But he starts off, which is where we should start off most of the time with a lot of different things, by defining what the gospel is not. But now, at this present time, salvific history has changed. But now, apart from the law, hold fast and stop. Do we like the law of God around here at Harmony Baptist Church? What? Yes! Of course we do. We love the law of God here at Harmony Baptist Church, and we should. It's not contrary to the gospel. The law and the gospel serve completely different purposes, and they always have. As a matter of fact, this is helpful when you consider John Calvin, for example, and his three uses of the law. You've heard me talk about this before. You don't need to know who John Calvin is. Don't worry about it. But let me break it down for you. He says that the law has always and continues to always be these three things. Firstly, that it is a mirror. The law is a mirror. The law of God, what he says, how he says to do it, is a mirror. That is that it shows you, the person who looks at the law, that there is, in fact, Something to be worried about. It gives you knowledge of your sin. It shows you where you don't measure up. It shows you how in fact, how vile you actually are. Nobody can read the law of God and not be offended. You read the law of God, you figure out very quickly, I don't measure up to this. I can't do that. Talk to my spouse, I didn't nail that one. 
So it acts as a mirror. It shows us and gives us the knowledge of our sins. Secondly, it acts as a fence. Look, we are evil. That is the point of Romans chapter 1 all the way to chapter 3. But we could do far more evil far more often. But the law of God acts as a fence. When Pastor Darren, when OSA, when anything that cruciform is a part of or any of the case may be, when we start to try to inject law into society, we're not doing it because we think that if we make a Christian nation, somehow everybody's going to be saved. No, we don't believe that. But we believe that those who are saved should try to get Christian laws enacted so that we could prevent as much evil as humanly possible for as long as humanly possible. Amen? So it acts as a fence. We could do far more evil far more often, but God in His common grace or His common mercy is extravagant. Thirdly, it acts as a guide. It shows us where we don't measure up. It keeps us in line. And it also shows us where to go. How do you love your spouse as you ought? Go to the Scriptures. How do you faithfully uh, pastor. Go to the scriptures. How do you faithfully be a student at school? Go to the scriptures. How do you uh, abide by the civil laws? Go to the scriptures. When should we defy those certain laws? Go to the scriptures. Go to the law of God. The law of God is our mirror. It is our offense and it is our guide. But even though that is so very helpful, it is not the gospel And it will not save us. It can't save us, for it lacks the power to do so. The law can tell you what to do, but it can't make you do it. It can tell you what to do, but it can't change your heart. It can tell you what to do, but it cannot pay the penalty that you owe God for the sin that you commit against Him and others. And the reason it's important, the reason that I believe that Paul says it here on the front end, and the reason that... I'm telling you this on the front end is because I believe as a general disposition of our sinful heart, we often confuse the law and the gospel. Now, I'm not saying we all mean to do it. But we all are little lawyers and we all want to make sure everybody acts exactly how we want them to act. And oftentimes we can use the Bible in ways that actually negate the, the, negate the truths of the gospel. What do I mean by that? Well, in order for you to be a Christian, you have to abide by these certain laws or do these certain things. Sure, a, gospel, a truly felt and believed gospel is going to change the way we live. But it's not the gospel. And it's certainly not laws that you create. Far, many, far too many people create their own laws. The law is helpful, but it is not the gospel. You are never going to get closer to God by doing more things that the Bible tells you to do. In one sense, approval. In one sense, being brought into relationship. Right? Being reconciled to God. Now, once you are saved, can those laws bring more joy to your life? Sure. Can they be of help to you? Sure. But it's out of your law, out of your love for God, out of the truths of the gospel, that you actually overflow into thankfulness and actually live the way He designed you to live. 
But it's apart from this law that the righteousness has, of God has been manifested or revealed. The word manifest there just means to be revealed. It's put on display. The righteousness of God is put on display, not by words written down on tablets, but in the person of Jesus Christ. When it says righteousness of God here, I want you to understand something, something that Martin Luther helped us understand in the Reformation. That when it's speaking of the righteousness of God, it's not speaking of um, the righteousness that you perform that makes you look like God. It is a righteousness that comes from God. Right? A better way to translate that might be the righteousness from God. Because what this text wants us to understand is that this righteousness is an alien righteousness given to us, not one that we can attain. It is a righteousness given to us that we did not earn ourselves. Why? Because the righteousness that God requires, according to the scriptures, is absolute and utter perfection. God cannot look at, dwell with, approve of, or give a hearty congratulations to sin or those who sin. You've heard me say multiple times, Psalm 5 is an indictment against everybody who claims that God loves everybody. God hates all who sin. So it comes back to our question then, if we all sin, if we all fall short of the glory of God, which is in this text, then how can God love any of us? How can God, according to Job's question again, be, how can man be made right before God? It requires the righteousness that comes from God. And the good news is, friends, and I want you to hear me on this, because God is such an amazing God, that that which God requires, God gives. That which God requires, God gives. It is apart from the law that this righteousness that comes from God is manifested or revealed to us. In other words, we get this righteousness from God and for God's glory. It's nothing that you can attain on your own. Secondarily, Not only is this gospel message apart from the law, it is also witnessed by the Old Testament canon. The Old Testament scriptures. One of the things you need to understand about this reality, this righteousness of God, is that it is not something that is came, came new on the scene. It is something that has been witnessed by the 39 books in the Old Testament. Genesis through Malachi. This theme of a righteousness that would be given by God is ancient. You don't believe me? Look with me at Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. God is cutting a covenant with Abram. And it says something interesting about Abram in verse 6. It says, Then he, that is Abram, Believed in Yahweh, and he, that is Yahweh, counted it to him as righteousness. The righteousness, according to that text, that was ascribed to Abram was not one of doing. Though God told him to go do some stuff. He told him to go to the land with which he would show him. 
Which, by the way, just pause there for a second. How many of us are not willing to do what God says when it's right in our face in the Word of God? And He tells Abram to go somewhere that I will show you once you start moving. That's not this sermon, but it would be a good one. But it was by his belief and his trust in God that God would do what God said He was going to do. And listen to me, friends. Nothing honors God more than you believing that He will do what He says He will do. The world will tell you people can't change. Once this, always that. What does God say? If He trembles at my word and He loves my Son, He will not only change, He will be given a new heart. His heart of stone will be removed from His flesh and He will be given a heart of flesh that beats red with blood for Him. That is the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Verse 31 and following. When God makes promises that He's going to grow you, He will grow you. When God makes promises that you can trust Him, you can trust Him. When God has promised to be the Savior of the world, trust that He is going to be the Savior of the world. And when He says, I will forgive your sins and I will remember them no more because of My Son, Jesus Christ, trust His promises. When he says in Romans 8.28, after you've absolutely fallen on your face and you're disgusted with your sin struggle, remember that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to kill sin in the flesh. Have that stamped on your heart. This is the repeated refrain throughout all of Scripture. Go to Psalm 32 very quickly. I got time. It's all good. Psalm 32. David. Back to David again. He's writing a psalm. Likely, to some degree, about the sin that he committed with Bathsheba. The one that we've already talked about in this very sermon. And he says this, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man whose iniquity Yahweh will not take into account, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. That's a beautiful thing to remember. But you also have to remember that God says in the book of Deuteronomy that he who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. In other words, you, in order to be just, you have to handle those who act unjustly in a just manner. That means if somebody takes another human life, according to the Old Testament Scriptures, you take theirs. So is God telling His people that he's doing something that he has forbidden. Oh no. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. But, number three. This alien righteousness is provided by God. But now, verse 21, apart from the law of the, uh, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Which, by the way, I didn't actually say this explicitly, so let me say it before I move on. The law and prophets there is the Bible. It is shorthand for the Bible. That's what they called their Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. Okay, And so all these historical books, they would have actually been in the Prophets. 
so it's not just saying just these parts of the Old Testament. It's the whole canon. That was my point, uh, but I kind of skipped right over that. But that's that. there it is, okay? Uh, the Law and the Prophets, that's the entire Old Testament. <coughs> Even the righteousness of God or from God through faith in Jesus Christ. This sounds redundant as I've talked about it a little bit already. But this righteousness is an alien righteousness. This righteousness, according to this text that we just read, is a text that makes God the source of this righteousness. It's a righteousness that is given and works righteousness in the believer. And because we've talked about this at some length, I'll move on to my next point, which will make you happy. Four. This gospel message, this gospel message exists apart from the law. It has been witnessed by the Old Testament canon. It is provided by God. He's the source and the uh, source of it. It is an alien righteousness, and I don't mean from another planet. I mean outside of us. It's external. And fourth, it is received by faith. Verse twenty-two. Even this righteousness of God through faith. In Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. Friends, the reality is. Well, let me say it this way. If you have tasted this forgiveness. If you have tasted this reality. That God has gifted you. This righteousness in Jesus Christ. You don't get it apart from a robust faith. In Jesus Christ. You must believe on Jesus Christ. Not everybody gets this reality. It is reserved for those alone who have had faith in Jesus Christ. What is faith? Well, to some, that's a very hard question to answer. For some, it's a far too easy question to answer. The reality is it's somewhere in the middle. Faith isn't simply intellectual assent. It's not coming to church on Sunday morning and just saying, I buy it. I get it. All right, so like the Bible sounds cool. Um, I, I watch the, the History Channel sometimes, and sometimes they, you know, kind of validate some of the claims the Bible makes historically, and, you know, other times they don't, but the pastor has really good answers for why the History Channel is saying those sorts of things, and you know, I, I like going to church on Sunday. Sometimes I get encouraged, although sometimes I really don't get in church courage. And so, uh, you know, you hear about the sin thing and then I feel kind of discouraged. And, uh, you know, but at the end of the day, the community is good there. And, you know, my spouse has a good time. And so like, OK, whatever, I could be doing worse things. That's not faith. And it's not going to save you. You know what else isn't Faith. I've got my checklist here of all the th ways in which it says in the Bible that I, uh, I should act like a Christian. I check this box. I check this box. People at the church think I'm, I'm, I'm the saint of the world. I'm, I'm very helpful. And I generally buy the stuff the pastor says as well. That's not faith. You know what faith is? It's more than intellectual sin. It's more than just acting moral. Faith is doing exactly what Abram did. This is the best way I know how to explain it. And it's putting one foot in front of the other in trust with God, for God. 
even when it's not easy. It's believing the things that seem hard to believe. It's trusting wholeheartedly with your life that Jesus Christ is who He says He is. And inside of faith is bound up in a lot of different things. In faith you have belief. In faith you have submission. Submission. Why is submission part of faith? This was a big debate in the 90s. It out of something called the Lordship Salvation Controversy. Do you have to see Jesus as Lord in order to see Him as, uh, as a Savior? Do you have to have faith and submission? Or is faith one thing and submission another? My question is to you. If you're actually believing what Jesus says about Himself, then wouldn't it make sense that you would believe that He should be the one that you submit to? Because isn't that part of what He tells you to, to believe? And then... You don't care about this part. I could just skip this part, but I'm not going to for those of you who uh, like to read. John Piper came into the mix just relatively recently and kind of reignited the controversy because what he did is he said, you know what? That's not enough either. That's not enough either. What you also have to do is treasure Christ, which incidentally is what we're calling this, se this uh, series, is it not? Christ our treasure. Because... How insulting would it be for you wives out there uh, who, who, who understand the biblical teaching on submission and you just say, yeah, I submit to my husband, but I don't love him. Yeah, I do what my husband says and I make sure the meals are cooked for my children, but I don't really care for him all that much. Yeah, I serve my church. But I don't like them. Well, shouldn't the logic follow then that if we believe what God says about who God is and what He is going to do and the, in the, uh, the salvation He has provided through His Son, that we not only obey His Son, but we love His Son and we treasure Him for what He has done? Friends, that's faith. Faith is this big ball of putting your money where your mouth is with your life, with your words. And when your actions contradict those things that you believe and you fail to submit and treasure as you ought, you come to the gospel. You come to the alien righteousness and you say, I don't want this. Look, the gospel is not that someday Jesus is going to make you perfect. Well, a little further on down the road, uh, that's true, uh, glorification. But here and now, it's not that He makes life perfect, that He makes you perfect. It's that He changes fundamentally your nature. That the things that you once loved, you hate. And the things that you used to hate, you now love. I, I've heard Paul Washer uh, give the illustration. He says, look, imagine you have a man who's never heard the gospel before. And he is... You know, in a situation at his house, and his wife says, "Hey, will you will you take out the trash for me before you get started on uh, whatever it is you got to start? You go to work and you have an office job or whatever the case may be." And uh, you know, he he forgets to take out the trash. Why? Because he's a human and because he's a husband, right? <laughs> uh, and that's what they do. They forget to take out the trash. And well, they do a lot more than that, but uh, it is one thing that they do. 
this man gets home uh, from work, and uh, his wife, you know, maybe pleasantly, maybe not so pleasantly, uh, hey, dummy, uh, didn't I ask you to take out this trash? Like, what's going on here, bro? You know? And uh, he loses his mind. What, you know, don't you know what I do for you? Uh, you know, like, you know, starts, you know, just yelling and, you know, acting a fool up in there and bringing up past sins and being like, well, you did this and you did this. And, you know, just completely acting out of line, right? And goes to bed and, you know, they have their little spat and, Somehow they kind of try to move past each, move past it, forgive one another, so on and so forth. Now this man hears the gospel. He goes to church that Sunday, and he's impacted by it. The Lord graciously just completely demolishes his heart, reveals his sin to him. And he sees exactly the ways in which he's failing. He sees his sin. He sees all the issues that his wife just told him about the day before. Fast forward next week. Why fast? Hey, but you going to take out the trash for me this week? You going to do that? Be helpful, thanks. He goes to work. He forgets to take out the trash. And he's on his, one, on his way home. He's thinking, man, I forgot to take out that trash. I'm about to get it, you know. How does he respond? How do you think he responds now that he's heard that gospel? Some of you waiting for me to say that he just became the perfect husband. That's not the answer. The answer is, he explodes on her in the exact same way. He loses his mind. Calls her everything but a white girl. You know, just everything. It happens, okay? So the question becomes then, well, what does the gospel do? Let me tell you what the gospel does. The gospel is working on this man's heart. And so instead of him going to bed, you know what he does? I'm sorry, I've sinned. I was uncalled for. I shouldn't have done that. I repent of my sin before God and before you. I'm sorry. I will work harder not to do that again. Same man, same situation, same initial response, but there was something different that happened on that back end. Some of us need to be more patient with the people around us. Some of us need to understand, especially for those of you who are older, who have had a long life of just straight sinning your tail off for 20 plus years. That's going to take some work. Oh, it takes work on all of us. None of us. None of us are without the need of some heart surgery. Amen. Uh, amen, <laughs> amen, all right. Get an amen on that one, huh? So here's what it is. Faith is the instrument God uses to bind his people to himself. It is a life revolution, a radical trust in the God of the word and the word of God. And this is my fifth point, which is it is needed by all. It's needed by all. That wasn't just for your spouse. That wasn't just for your kid. It's for you. It's for me, right? One of the things that people get confused about is they think that the guy up at the front of the stage pulpit, uh, the one who is preaching the Bible, has this thing figured out. It's not true. 
It's not true. Okay? I like it. The Puritans used to say something to the effect of, I'm just a beggar, just a fellow beggar, and I just happen to know where some bread's at, and I'm pointing to it as best I know how to do. Right? Well, what about 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus and all these qualifications? Look, I totally agree. Right? If you do not meet those qualifications, we've got to have a talking to you if you want to be an elder. But here's what those are not. Those are not qualifications for an elder. Those are qualifications for a biblical man. That's the baseline. Right? So, husbands, uh, children, teenagers, that's, what we, that's where we start. That's where we start. But I'm going to fail. I fail every day. Ask my wife. She'll tell you. Maybe not all the details. Hopefully not all the details. Uh, but I do. And you do. And we all need grace. And we all need Jesus. And we need the righteousness from God. Because all need it. Look, it's in the text. Verse 23. For all have sinned. How many is all? All. You guys know your Greek well. I'm proud of you. All. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the glory of God is what it's all about. It's not the glory of you. It's not the glory of this church. It's the glory of God. And you'll notice something. That sin is always juxtaposed to the glory of God. Sin doesn't just harm you, though it does. But it robs God of His glory and it de-gods God of His godness. You become the only God in your own mind, when you thwart both His gospel and His law, and you reject it, and you sin. And because everybody did God's God of His godness in the robbing of His glory, we need, we need this redemption that is through Jesus Christ, which brings me to my next point. To summarize, so we know where we've been, so we know where we're going, the gospel exists apart from the law. It is witnessed by the Old Testament canon. It is provided by God. It is received by faith, and I will add alone. Faith alone. It is needed by all, and it is acquired for us by Jesus. And this might be my last point. I don't know. We'll see uh, what time avails us. It is acquired by Jesus. Now, to some degree, I understand that you already understand that. I hope that it has been clear that Jesus is, in fact, the reason that this alien righteousness could, in fact, be extended to us. Here's the deal, and we're going to get to it here in a moment. God does not just forgive you because He wants to forgive you. And there's even something a little bit further on down here, which is that you can't just forgive someone else apart from the blood of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness can't just be offered. Sounds strange, right? But it can be offered because of Jesus. Firstly, for you, it can be offered because of Jesus. Look with me. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift. It's a gift. I would love to talk more about that, but it is literally something that you got that you don't deserve. It's a gift. It's a grace. Nobody deserves it. Nobody deserves the gift. 
This morning we were just talking about God's sovereignty and salvation in our uh, preaching class. And, um, you know, we told, we told them not to make every sermon about predestination. So here I am doing what I am told them not to do. But here's the deal. Look, if, <laughs> if here's the deal. God is sovereign and He predestined those whom He saves. That means, in case you guys don't know what that means, to determine the destiny of someone beforehand. Right? Revelation says that the Lamb was slain and the names of the book of the uh, the, the names in the book of life were already sealed before the foundation of the world was created. And the only way we would get offended by God choosing his bride, even though we think we deserve to pick our bride, we just don't want God to do it. The only way we would be offended by that is if we didn't understand that all of this is grace. That all of this is a gift given to us that we do not deserve. And we do not deserve. It is a gift of grace through faith. And it is a gift by grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. we got two words. One here, a redemption in verse 24. And 25, we have a word called propitiation, which essentially means, well, it doesn't mean the same thing, but it paints the, some, the same picture. It's two pieces of the salvific kind of puzzle, or as we will see here, uh, a display. Redemption uh, is a word that is used to speak that of slavery. To redeem someone is to redeem them from slavery or bondage. In the Old Testament, you could buy a slave to set them free, and that would be redeeming them. Or if you want to put it, oh, we don't have slaves anymore. I'm having you know, a hard time wrapping my mind around this. Think about uh, when somebody gives you a gift card to say uh, naps. No, that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, iTunes. <laughs> iTunes. Got old there for a second. I'm sorry. Uh, iTunes. You go in there. Now, this is trivial. Okay, I just want to help you understand it, but understand that this pales in comparison to the reality of what redemption is. You put in your little code and then you get money to buy music. You redeemed your code. Okay, So Jesus redeems his people from slavery. Did you know sin, uh, you, you are, before you come to Christ, are in bondage to sin? You aren't just loving it, you're enslaved by it. But often you want to say it the other way, you're enslaved by it, but you love it. Which is why the Israelites in Egypt, for example, uh, when they were being led out of Egypt, out of slavery, they said, well, we're just going to die here in the wilderness. You should have just left us as slaves because at least there we had some food. They preferred the slavery for the comforts it provides. In the same way, we are enslaved to sin and we love it and we prefer the comforts, which is why we need God to reach in, to give us grace, to redeem us from the pits of hell that we've created for ourselves. It is in Jesus. It is in Jesus. Jesus acquired it for us. But for example, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Uh, I preach this every single year on Good Friday. Since I've been here, Darren has not preached a Good Friday except for one time, which I guess it's only been like three times since I've been here. So the odds really aren't in my favor. I shouldn't have said that. The truth is, but I, but I did preach at the place I went. So technically, it's still true. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says that he, that is God the Father, 
knew, uh, made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God the Father, according to Acts, 20, uh, Acts 2, crushed the Son for his own pleasure. And it was the will of the, world, uh, it was the, will of the Lord to crush him, it says. And it's not because he delights in harming his son. Remember, you, we talked about this last week or the week before. There was a covenant of redemption uh, where God the Father and God the Son made a covenant with one another to procure his people and the Spirit was there to apply said salvation. This is something that, that, that was agreed upon within the Godhead. So God's not out there just whacking his son for the pleasure of it. The reason that he was pleased by the death of his son was because he would purchase and redeem a people and glorify his name in the process. And Jesus did that. Jesus lived the perfect life. That is, according to the law of God, where we fail, he succeeded. Where you succumb to temptation, he excelled. The end of Hebrews chapter 2, it says that he endured all of this so that he could come to the aid of those who need it. Who have tasted and seen temptation. And people often say, well, Jesus Christ never sinned. He was never tempted. How could he absolutely understand? Because he's been where you can't go. Where you fall, where you give temptation, he stood his ground! He looked temptation and sin in the face and he said, no! So that he could die in your place. So that his blood would flow so that yours wouldn't have to eternally. He tasted the wrath of God on your behalf so that you could taste this grace. So that you could be extended this righteousness. So that your resume and your report card in front of God would say, I am perfect like my Savior. Because when God looks down on you, He doesn't see your filth. He doesn't see your mess. He sees the perfect work and the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on your behalf. And if that won't make you say amen, I don't know what to do for you. Amen. Jesus Christ is our righteousness. And the question is, why? Why would he send his son to live the perfect life, to die the death that we deserve to die, so that you could taste fellowship with him for eternal, eternally? I'm glad you asked. That's the next part of what the Bible addresses here. Look at these last few senses here. Verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith for a demonstration of his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's that interesting sentence there that he did, he did this. He put the cross on display uh, in part because he had to deal with past sins that he looked over. 
So if you remember my beginning illustration with David, how can, how can Samuel look at David and say, your sins are forgiving. The Lord is not going to hold, this accountable, uh, hold you accountable to this, for this. He's going to forgive you. Now there might be some consequences in your life because of this sin. I'm not going to be able to really orchestrate some of that for you. And what were those consequences? Did he get booted out as king? No, but his... He wasn't allowed to build a temple, for one. For two, his children stunk. (laughs) His his legacy was ruined, other than the fact that Jesus came from his line, and that's pretty cool, right? But the reason he can do that is because the reason he can overlook those sins previously committed, this new covenant, the covenant of grace, we can taste this forgiveness. And one of the other things is, He did this and he put it on display. And by the way, when it says put on display, I want you to think about something. John Calvin, once again, I'm getting real Presbyterian this sermon, I suppose, used to talk about this whole redemptive historical movement as the theater of God. To put his glory on display. To show those who would be affected by the finished work of Christ. They might be amazed by it. They might love it. They might see it beautifully. And so, God does this to be both, according to this text here, the just and justifier. He puts it on display to show us two realities. One, to make us just, and two, to justify us. He makes us just in that He made Jesus who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might be the righteousness of God in Him. He wipes our slate clean. He forgives us of our transgressions. And He upholds His justice. Do you know why Jesus had to die? Jesus had to die because someone has to pay for sin or else He would not be a just God. If God did not punish sin, If God did not do away with it, then he would be nobody worth worshiping. If someone murdered your best friend, your father, your brother, your sister, whatever the case may be, and you go to the courtroom of the world and you say, something needs to be done about this, we know who did it, and they say, sorry, I'm going to decide to forgive him today, uh, you would not be happy with that. And for good reason. Because justice absolutely and utterly matters. And so justice has to be served. And justice has to be served to a human. Why? Because human beings are the ones that got us into this problem. So it has to be a human sacrifice. However, human beings cannot be perfect. They thrust us into a world full of sin. And so, it also, uh, this sacrifice also needed to be God so that he could withstand sin, temptation. And this is where we get the hypostatic union. God is 100% or truly man and truly God or 100% God. Both one and the same, two natures. And he pays for our sin. I want you to picture something. Do you remember when Jesus is being taken to the cross at Golgotha? You picture it. He's already been beaten. He's already been bloodied. He's already been broken. He's dragging a wooden cross. 
on his wounded back, knowing that he is about to be drilled to this thing and left on this cross to die. And it says in Hebrews chapter 12 that he did this for the joy that was set before him. The joy that you would be saved. The joy that God would be glorified. And that all things would be made right. And he, and he says, and he prays for those who are about to drill the nails through his hand. And he says what? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. This is the heart of your Jesus. The Jesus that doesn't want you to taste hell. The Jesus that does not want you to taste a life of unrighteousness. A Jesus who put his money where his mouth is and he lived the perfect life. He died the death we deserve to die. He rose from the dead. God gave him a stamp of approval and he now sits in heaven ruling and reigning and he will be back again someday. He will destroy death once and for all and the world will be reconciled to him. And we will dine and we will feast. We will laugh and we will worship for the rest of eternity. Our Savior who wipes every tear from our eye and who has ridded our life and the lives of everybody else of sin. But if you don't know Jesus, then there is no righteousness for you. The glorious future that I just painted, it's not for you. But it can be. You repent of your sin this day. You renounce it as rebellion against God. You bow to Him in reverence. You submit your knee to Him. And you come to Him. I'm not too Calvinist to say come. Come. All who are thirsty, come. This righteousness can be yours. All those who hunger, come. And get it without price. Works will not save you, but works save you because Jesus performed the works to save you. So come trust the one who did all that you could not do. And if you have come, worship, live. Pray with me. Father God, we thank you so much that you have given a son to us who, have give, who has given us righteousness. A righteousness that we do not deserve and one that we cannot perform this side of heaven. We ask that you would continue to grow us and point out the sin where we have it and to remove it and to help us be better vessels of glory for you. Purge us of our sinful disposition and remind us of the goodness of your Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.